Uh, find Genesis 26. Genesis 26, looking tonight at the topic, Enduring Trials and Experiencing God's Presence. Enduring Trials and Experiencing God's Presence. Genesis 26. And let's read the entire chapter. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Elimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Elimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Elimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Elimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Elimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. 
Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am... I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar, with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Philcal, the commander of his forces, Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you, so we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm just as we did not harm you but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank. Early the next morning the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them away, uh, sent them on their way and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. Now, I mentioned to you last week that Isaac doesn't enjoy the same amount of press that his father Abraham and son Jacob enjoyed. In fact, I want you to listen to Dr. Griffith Thomas, the way he describes this. He says, and I quote, Isaac was the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. How would you like to be described that way? The ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. Now, obviously, Isaac was the son of promise that Abraham and Sarah had waited many years for. But once he shows up on the scene, there's not a great deal that we know about Isaac. Uh, We read chapter after chapter on Abraham, and then pretty soon we're going to be reading chapter after chapter on Jacob, But really, when you consider the life of Isaac very carefully, there's not a great deal said about him in the Bible. At least as far as what he did with his life. In fact, Genesis 26 gives us the most amount of detail on the life of Isaac that we have anywhere else in the entire Bible. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 26 is the fact that the presence of God makes all the difference in the world in a person's life. The presence of God makes all the difference in the world in a person's life. Now, first of all, with me tonight, I want you to notice the presence 
of trials. The presence of trials. And block off the first six verses because we're going to talk about this truth from these verses. The presence of trials. As chapter 26 opens, we see right off the bat that what's going on. There's a famine in the land. Now folks, we need to understand something. In a desert climate, a climate that didn't get much rain anyway... If you had a year, uh, uh, an entire year where there was not much rainfall, you could find yourself in a drought very quickly. And then with a drought, what would happen? A famine. A famine was always soon to follow right on the heels of a drought. We see that Isaac does something that his father Abraham also did. Uh, And what is it that he does? He goes down to Abimelech. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 and pick up reading with me in verse 1. Genesis 20 verse 1 says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and sure, for a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Elimelech, uh, Abimelech, rather, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent uh, nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And so Isaac does the very same thing that his dad, Abraham, had done. And folks, what that means is that by now, Abimelech, is either a very old man or it could have been a family name which was handed down, which was common. Or it could have even been a title describing a dynasty. Could have been a dynastic name, which was also common at the time. Now, it's impossible to to know which of those three options that we encounter here, whether he's an old man, whether it was a family name, or whether it was a dynastic name. We don't know which the case is. Could have been either of those three. But I want you to notice what God says to Isaac. He says, do not go down to Egypt. Now, running down to Egypt was always a bad thing to do. It was a picture of running to the world for help instead of trusting God. Egypt was a wealthy, ancient country. What was it that made Egypt so wealthy and stable? It was the Nile River. The Nile River helped Egypt to avoid the famines that many other countries in the region would experience. 
The Nile would also overflow its banks every year during flood season. And when it would overflow its banks, it would deposit soil and silt and minerals in the fields on both sides of the river. And, and that would make that whole entire region around the Nile uh, very fertile. And so the ancient peoples would often run down to Egypt. But Egypt was also a pagan place and it had lots and lots of various idols and, and false gods. It's, it's as though Egypt had a different god for everything. And so for God's people to run down to Egypt was a danger for two reasons. Number one, it showed that they were not trusting God to look after them. And number two, it would expose them to false religions. And sometimes for ancient peoples, these false religions could be quite tempting. And so God tells Isaac to stay put and not to run down to Egypt. Now folks, what is generally our temptation when we face trials? We want a quick way out, don't we? We want a quick fix. But what God's children need to learn is that God puts us in trials for a reason. If God's put you in a trial or allowed you to be undergoing a trial, you don't need to be looking to run away from it. If you run away from it, you're going to miss the reason that God has you in that trial to begin with. Somebody once wisely said, don't waste a good trial. God might have to put you in another one to teach you the very same thing. And so if you're in a time of trial, you need to try to discover if God has you in it for a reason, what is that reason, and what is he trying to teach you? I want you to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And pick up reading with me in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on divisions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. The Greek word uh, is, is literally a dagger. 
It's not a little splinter. It was a dagger. He says, it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul had a trial. His trial was a thorn in the flesh. And you know, scholars for 2,000 years have debated what they think this thorn in the flesh probably was. We're not told. But it was something that obviously bothered the Apostle Paul a great deal. And he prayed three times that it would be removed. And, And God chose not to remove it. Because Paul was going to learn something through that thorn in the flesh that he could learn no other way. And that was that God's grace was sufficient. Sometimes God takes away trials. Sometimes he doesn't. If he doesn't, he's teaching you his strength is sufficient to see you through There's other kind of trials that may be more along the lines of something that God intends to use to equip you. Back in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, beginning in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So what's Paul saying there? Sometimes God allows us to go through something that equips us to better be able to serve Him. That trial you go through might essentially be your seminary training. God's using that in your life to help you so when you turn around and see somebody else in the church family going through that same trial... You are better equipped to help them. You can come alongside of them and help them with the same comfort that God comforted you with when you went through that very same thing. And so you may be going through a trial, not simply for yourself, but in the long run, what God might want you to do to help somebody else. But folks, we shouldn't think it unusual if God puts us through trials. It's the common experience of all Christians. Somebody once said you're either about to go into a trial, you're in one now, or you're coming out of one. And that's so true to life, isn't it? Now, God did two other wonderful things in this chapter. In verse 3, back, back in uh, Genesis, Genesis 26. In verse 3, 
God reiterates to Isaac the Abrahamic covenant that he had first given to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17, in all three of those chapters, God had made a covenant with Abraham and he restated it and restated it again. You remember that? He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And not only am I going to give this land to you and to your descendants, but your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens above. The Abrahamic covenant. And what God is doing here in Genesis 26 is he is reiterating that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac. So that's one other thing that that God is doing here in this chapter. But secondly, I want you to notice that also God is assuring Isaac of his presence with him. He says, Isaac, I'm not going to leave you. He says, stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. Now, folks, when we're going through trouble, what do we need to know? We need to know that God is with us, don't we? We're not alone. It's interesting at the end of the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do you think Jesus said that? Because he knew that as we carry out the great commission, we will occasionally face trouble. And we will face enemies. And so it would mean all the it would make all the difference in the world to them to know that Jesus was saying, I will be with you. I'm expecting you to obey me and I'm expecting you to go into all the world and be a witness of me and make disciples. I'm expecting you to do that, but I'm not expecting you to do it alone. I'm going to be with you. Now, it's interesting That in uh, Acts 18, while Paul was at Corinth, the city was about to get in a huge uproar over Paul. And God appeared to Paul in a vision that night. And what did God assure the Apostle Paul of? Paul, I will be with you. Paul, you need to stay there in the city and you need to continue to be a witness of me. You're going to have enemies. You're going to have opponents. You're going to face trial and and tribulation. There's going to be trouble in the city. But I want you to stay put there because I am going to be with you. Now, folks, when we claim the promise of the presence of God, we really need to be about God's business. Now, don't get me wrong. God is always with his children. God's always with his children. 
But the promise of God's presence, when you, when you look at those occurrences in the Bible where God is promising his presence to his children, it's generally in the context of what? His children doing his will. His children carrying out his will. In other words, the presence of God was always an assurance that God gave his people in the Bible whenever he was sending them somewhere to do his bidding. Whenever he was sending them to do his business, he was promising his presence. Or if they were already doing God's will, it was, an, it was an added assurance for them. I think of King David. King David, the king in, in Israel. And he faced many enemies. And later on in his reign, as King David penned Psalm 139, what did he say in Psalm 139? What did he proclaim in that psalm? That God's presence would always be with him. Whichever direction he went in, he could not get away from God's presence. If he were to go that direction or that direction or that direction or that direction, whatever direction he went in, he was assured that God was with him. And so again, yes, it's true. God always promises his presence to his children. But normally in the Bible, and you can go home tonight and you can study it out for yourself. Normally in the Bible, whenever God assures his children that he will be with them, usually the context is God is, God is sending his people to do something for him. And in that context... God is saying, I will be with you. <clears throat> well, the second thing I want you to see tonight, the sins of the fathers. The sins of the fathers. Pick up reading with me in verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? I want you to think with me of what God said in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, verse 5 and then verse 6, the Lord said... You shall not bow down to them, that is, other images. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents 
to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Punishment for the sins of the fathers is usually taken to be some inevitable consequence of the father's sin, which is probably right. For instance, if a dad is an alcoholic, there may be sins related to that that live on in that family. But it could also be that the father's sin will tend to resurface in his kids. That happens also. It may be that the kids grow up watching dad's response to things and they learn the very same patterns and they follow those very same patterns in their own lives. Perhaps that's the situation here. After all, Abraham has done this twice in his own life, right? Claiming that Sarah was not his wife, but his sister. Maybe Isaac had heard all about those occurrences. Maybe Isaac thought, hey, dad tried to do this to get to get out of being killed. I'm going to follow that same pattern. The timing seems odd, doesn't it? What has God just done? Restated the covenant. Given great promises to Isaac. Now you would think Isaac would be on a high. And yet, look at what he does. Who's that remind you of? Reminds me of Simon Peter. Remember Matthew 16? Jesus had carried the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was in the far north regions of Israel. It was a known pagan area. In that area, they served the, the Greek god Pan, Have you ever seen the the head of a man on a goat's body? That's Pan, the Greek god Pan. And in Caesarea Philippi, they worship Pan. Jesus carried his disciples to an area like that and said, Who do men say that I am? You remember what they answered? Some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Well, keep reading in that passage, just a few verses. What happens? I mean, here Simon Peter has made this great confession of faith, and Jesus has blessed him. What Simon do a few verses later? He rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Peter says, Lord, that's not going to happen. 
And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not minding the things of God, but the things of man. So here's Peter on a high. And then right after that, he follows up with that sin. Isaac's doing the same thing. God's just repeated the Abrahamic covenant to him. And God's just said, I'll be with you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm going to be with you. And now Isaac turns around and does something like this. You know, it seems like Isaac could trust God, but only to a certain extent. We're good at that, aren't we? We'll trust God to a certain extent until we feel threatened in some way. And and then we'll try to revert to fixing the situation ourselves. Well, in the case of Abraham, in both instances, God is the one who exposed Abraham's lie about Sarah. But in this case, it's Abimelech. But maybe, you know, it was God allowing Abimelech to see what's going on. In verse 8, Abimelech looks out the window and sees Isaac interacting with Rebekah in a way that immediately Abimelech knows that Rebekah is not his sister. What did Abimelech see? Well, we're not told that, but it's left to the imagination. I think this illustrates something for us to remember. Somebody is always watching. Somebody's always looking out the window, so to speak. Folks, how sad that sometimes the world sees the church doing something that even the world knows is not right. That's pretty sad when the world rebukes us, right? Now, the world's guilty too, but the point is, the world knows that believers are supposed to do better. The world expects us to live by the standards that we preach. Remember what Paul said in Romans 2? To the Jews, he said, because of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Wow, that's that's strong language, isn't it? Because of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. I hope that as the world looks at us, they see genuine Christianity. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that that we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But Jesus said, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything anymore but to be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. 
And he said, no, no, nobody lights a lamp and then covers it with a bushel basket. That makes no sense at all. To light a lamp, to, to light up a dark room and then cover the lamp, that'd be counterintuitive. But that's exactly what we do oftentimes with our Christian witness. We hide the light. And as far as being salt, we, lose, we let something happen in our lives. And we lose our witness. Folks, even the world knows it ought not be this way. Well, thirdly, I want you to see Isaac's blessings. Isaac's blessings. Verse 12, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug In the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. We're told here that Isaac has planted crops and the crops have yielded a hundredfold harvest. Now folks, in the days before Modern agricultural techniques, this was a huge harvest. Almost unthinkable. To plant crops and the crops would yield a hundredfold? Unthinkable. And yet, why has it happened this way? Because God's blessed him. God's done this. Here again, we see in the Bible that God's servants are not perfect. In fact, they're sinful men at times. But God watches over them and blesses them. Isaac becomes a wealthy man. Now, when you consider that Abraham was one of the wealthiest men of his day, and Isaac would have inherited his father's wealth, and now Isaac has gone on to prosper too, then that clues you into the fact of just how wealthy Isaac has become. Now, it's Abraham's wealth plus his wealth. I heard recently a sermon by Dr. Al Mohler. Dr. Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he spoke in that message about how a few years back he had been invited to sit in on some meetings that American officials were having out in the desert of the Middle East with some... Uh, Bedouin herders. And Moeller said, we traveled out into the desert and here were these tribesmen, these herdsmen out there in the desert and each of them had their large tents. He said, now, 
You think of a tent and you think a tent. You know, how wealthy can these people be? He said, but when we lifted back the flap on these tents and we entered these tents to start our meetings, he said, I have not seen such wealth and such opulence in luxury condos on Manhattan Island in New York. He said, I saw wealth and I saw opulence like I have never seen in my entire life. In tents out in the middle of the desert. Isaac's become a very wealthy man. Notice what happens with his wealth. The locals get jealous, don't they? They're envious. So much so, what do they do? They stop up the wells. In a desert climate, what do wells mean? Wells mean water. What's water mean? It means you can have increase. And so they stop up the wells out of resentment. Finally, the king goes to Isaac and says, Will you please leave our area? You become too powerful for us. Isaac moves on at the king's request. And everywhere he goes, his servants find that they are involved in disputes with the locals over the control of the water. Again, in a desert climate. What's the big deal? Water's the big deal. But finally, he finds an area and a well where there is no dispute. And the Lord gives him rest. Folks, it's no wonder today that You'll never find uh, Essex Baptist Church or Sitna Baptist Church, but you will find Rehoboth, right? It means rest. Along that lines, I'm chasing a rabbit here. What plan on saying this? You've got to wonder why people today name their church Corinth Baptist Church. Have they not read First and Second Corinthians? Why would anybody name their church Corinth Baptist Church? Anyway, Rehoboth. He finally finds an area, no dispute. He journeys on to... Uh, Beersheba, he gets back to where God was working in Abraham's life. He finally gets, you know, he was heading down to Egypt, stops over in the land of the Philistines. Now he's back to Beersheba. God appears to him again, promises him again that he'll be with him and bless him. What's Isaac do? Isaac builds an altar there. And worships God. 
He's following in his dad's footsteps again, this time in a good way. Building an altar and worshiping God. Then Abimelech shows up again. This time, what's he want? The locals want to make peace with him. They want to make a treaty with him. Because I want you to notice it is, it is apparent even to them that God is with Isaac. Now folks, in closing tonight, I want to say if, if you're going through a trial... Don't run. Don't run. Why does God have you in that trial? What lessons does He intend for you to learn? You need to resist with every fiber of your being, try to resist fixing it yourself. If you try to fix it yourself, chances are you're going to make a bigger mess out of it. And you're also going to miss what God's trying to teach you. Also, don't look to the world to supply you with the answers that only God can give to you. The world can't do that. Only God can give you what you're looking for. Be careful of sins in your life that when exposed may hurt your witness. Examine your heart and repent of those. And finally, know that God is with you if you're His child. Know that He's with you. But remember the context where that promise is given. The context is you can have confidence as you do His will. As you follow Him and do His will, He's with you every step of the way.